Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the College Futures Foundation, which envisions a California where post-secondary education advances equity and unlocks upward mobility now and for generations to come. To learn more, visit collegefutures.org. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us online at letshearitcast.com. You can find us on LinkedIn and, yes, even on Instagram. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And we're back. Welcome in. You found us. We're glad to have you. Gather around, grab a seat. Welcome in. It's Let's Hear It. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. My goodness. Any New Year's resolutions you want to share before it's time? I resolve to make a lot of really great podcasts. <laughs> yes. It's worked. It only took five years. But I'm it only took five years. I'm furious at you. So, uh, Kirk, do you realize that we are beginning our sixth season? This is almost like a postgraduate education in podcasting, but it's it, it's time has just come. This this conversation, it's funny because I wanted to set are you this up. Yell at me now. I was trying to decide: am I really excited <laughs> or am I angry? You're gonna be mad at me, Kirk. Set this up because we have stuff to talk about. This conversation is an absolute affirmation of why we've been doing this for six years, and this is a really this is another great one, and it's a good one to start the year off for sure. I spoke with Don Chen, the president of the Serdna Foundation, and the Serdna Foundation has been around, I think it's like over 100 years, if I have mm. that right. Is that possible? I think he <laughs> mentioned this uh, in, the, in the conversation, but it's been around for a long quite a long time. Maybe it's not. Anyway, I have to look it up. And the Serdna the Foundation has been, has been working on environmental work. Uh, it's working on inclusive economies. And it is, and Don Chen, who comes out of, transportation and city planning. And then he was a grant maker at the Ford Foundation is, has been president for the last several years. And he's just such an interesting guy. And the kind of person that you're so happy is running a foundation because he clearly has a real understanding about the value and the power of philanthropy and also the potential dangers of philanthropy. And I, I just, I loved talking with him Kristen Graham told me, oh, Don is a roll up your sleeves kind of guy uh, before I spoke with him. And uh, and it shows. So roll up his sleeves that it sounds like he's collected furniture from street corners before and brought them into offices for newly formed nonprofits that he helped create. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I know that. <laughs> th this is a great conversation. And, and you know, we, we, we've heard this voice before on the podcast, I would say, Eric. And, and by that, what I mean is the gravity the gravity, the thoughtfulness, the thoroughness is so present. Um, so let's give this a listen. There's a lot that, to talk about once we come back. So this is Don Chen, president of the Surgeon Foundation on Let's Hear It. Welcome to Let's Hear It. Our guest today is Don Chen, the president of the Surgeon Foundation, which is a national family foundation dedicated to fostering sustainable environments, inclusive economies, and thriving cultures. Now, Don has a great background in environmental policy, racial justice, social progress, stuff that I'm just fascinated by. And by the way, Don, I have it on very good account that you're a roll up your sleeves kind of guy. So 
I can't wait to talk about that too. Thank you, Don, for coming on. Let's hear it. Thanks for having me. As I said, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. A number of people have said, oh boy, you have to meet Don Chen. He's amazing. And uh, uh, so that's going to make it even That's better. very kind. That's very kind. Now, you started your career working on transportation and land use policies and how those policies shape communities. What was that interest for you? How did how did you get into that kind of work? Sure. I, um, you know, I started out, if I, if I can really trace the lineage back to its origin as a, as a young person in college, even before that a little bit, I was always really interested in environmental issues. You know, from the time as a, a young kid, I, I kept having a recurring nightmare about environmental destruction. Mm. Um, <laughs> at, at what age? Oh, oh, probably in my single digits, you oh, know, as no. a kid. You know, having having nightmares about garbage falling from the sky and Whoa. things like that. And uh, as I got older, you know, learned about activism in high school, became very drawn to some some really charismatic leaders who led protests for environmental causes, civil rights, number of other major issues, and uh, started to really explore that as a as a young person. I was community organizer in New Haven while studying environmental policy as an undergraduate and uh, eventually came to bring those interests together in the form of environmental justice. I remember being in in the library and finding a, a journal called Race, Poverty, and the Environment, which was put out by the Urban Habitat Program, um, which back then was an offshoot of the Earth Island Institute out of San Francisco organization, Urban Habitat's still around. I think the journal is no longer uh, with us, but, you know, so many people that I came up in the movement with read that, were influenced by it, found our people through it, and um, I started to really pursue environmental justice as a career. So transportation land use, even though most people um, from the early days of environmentalists, uh, environmental justice saw themselves working on things like public health and toxics and and those types of issues. Um, there were there were also many of us who were interested in urban environmental issues related to infrastructure, housing, poverty, links uh, between community and and opportunity uh, in terms of how people can get to jobs and those types of things. So that's how I came to it. Well, I, I actually did environmental justice when I was on the Hill working for Congresswoman Nitty of Alaska as of Brooklyn. And one of these common refrains that we had was that the environment doesn't start at the city's edge, that people have this misperception that the that people in cities don't, they don't have environment there. What, and, and we spent a lot of time, and this is nominally a communications show, but we spent a lot of time trying to think about how do you communicate about environment in urban settings and, and the right of people to have access to a, a clean environment. How have you seen that conversation around communications around environment, environmental justice, frankly, developing over the years? I think you're absolutely right. There is uh, there, there are lots of misperceptions about the interaction between cities and the environment. I think it's become better, though. I think people are starting to realize just how important urban areas are uh, in in our global plight here. Right now, uh, approximately three quarters of our global greenhouse gas emissions come from cities and uh, mainly buildings and transportation. And we also see the pace of urban development growing, you know, very rapidly, relatively unimpeded. And that leads to all kinds of 
knock-on effects from habitat fragmentation to disruptions in the hydrological cycle to, you know, many, many others uh, that just further complicate the challenges that we're trying to uh, address. So I think people are starting to realize those connections. And then on top of that, from, you know, my perspective as an environmental justice advocate and champion over the years, uh, I think folks are, are really starting to make many more connections to public health especially those uh, in, in communities that are severely affected by uh, environmental factors, whether it's toxics or um, lack of access to water and sanitation and those types of resource needs. So hopefully uh, we're at a better state now. now. Now we need to convert all of that awareness into stronger action. My observation is that grassroots activism has had a huge, a huge role in that. What's your perspective? And obviously you started Smart Growth America. You're clearly a, a, an activist and a communicator at heart. Can you talk about how grassroots activism has been pushing that movement? Well, so much of uh, the change that we've seen, the beneficial change has come from the bottom up, come from grassroots, come from social movements. Um, I've worked in a lot of different countries across the globe, uh, especially in the global South and the U.S., and um, I've continued to be uh, struck with admiration of how grassroots organizations are able to diagnose the challenges that we're, we're facing within our broader societies uh, and able to develop solutions. Um, so, you know, the, when I think about my time at Smart Growth America, it was really an opportunity to pull together all kinds of activists from very grassroots organizations and, and community leaders in neighborhoods and in small towns, all the way up to national leaders working at big you know, national organizations and partnering with government agencies and whatnot. So um, I think a lot of the energy from this desire to change the way we grow our cities and towns really came from the grassroots and then translated up into more consequential national policy that uh, we're able to see now. As I said, you you started Smart Growth America. So it's our friend Kristen Grimm who said that you're a roll up your sleeves kind of guy. Many folks like me, I would go get a job at a regular place and then maybe someday a decade or two, I'd work my way up to the middle. Uh, you just started an organization. What possessed you to do that? And what, what did you think was missing? And what did you think you could help to bring about to, to fill that missing piece? I sort of started Smart Growth America almost by accident. It was during the 1990s, there were many leaders across the country, many different sectors who were really concerned about the negative effects of urban sprawl, sprawl development. Uh, this was compounded by urban disinvestment and all kinds of related issues. And we saw leaders from the grassroots, from government, private sector, nonprofits, of course, um, many different uh, walks of life really turning their attention to it. And at the time, there were several efforts uh, to try to establish a national coalition to combat these issues and try to put some reforms into place. And uh, many of those efforts had stalled. I, at the time, was at the Surface Transportation Policy Project, which is the kind of name of an organization that you would only find in Washington, D.C., like super, <laughs> super wonky and very specific and incredibly skillful. And, you know, at, at STPP, as we called it, I was partly responsible for working with many of the partner organizations in different localities, uh, grassroots groups, statewide organizations, national groups, what we often called the Losers Coalition, because these were stakeholders <laughs> who 
felt that we were always on the short end of the stick because, you know, national transportation policy, which at the time was really prioritizing highways and road construction, you know, was basically screwing over our communities and people across the country. And so the folks that I worked with were civil rights activists, anti-poverty uh, folks, uh, people who cared about access to jobs, public transportation, those types of things. And given the situation with organizing around sprawl development, you know, after after several of these efforts uh, nationally had stalled, I volunteered to try my hand at uh, organizing a national coalition, not so much because I considered myself to be uh, an expert on the issues of, of land use or growth management, but more because I knew that I was an effective organizer and I could apply my organizing skills to, to that task. So I set about to that challenge really in a similar way, which is to identify all the constituencies and stakeholders that really felt like they were uh, getting the short end of the stick based on the current model of development in the United States. Uh, and it was a similar cast of characters, civil rights groups, uh, housing organizations, folks working on urban planning, and pulled together this coalition to try to uh, make some change for the better. We had Fred Blackwell on, who's the head of the San Francisco Foundation in my former house, and he said that he, his mom would tell him, his mother is, of course, the famous Angela Glover Blackwell, if he had a problem that didn't involve a coalition or partnering, she would tell him that either he didn't understand the problem or he didn't understand the solution. So coalitions, partnering with others feel like an essential component to getting anything done anywhere. And you help to drive a really important one. And we obviously have seen how, this tra how the transportation field has changed to go far beyond roads and bridges to include ensuring that people can get where they need to go in a way that makes sense, that is equitable, that helps to build rather than separate. Can you talk just about coalitions and how you pull all these different pieces together in a cohesive or in an attempt to be cohesive and coherent on an issue? Yeah, I think you're right. Coalitions are absolutely essential. I see it as uh, essential for power building. If you're really trying to reform deeply well-established systems, uh, as we, um, you know, several of us have in the transportation field or urban planning field, you got to build some power. You got to build a, a, a constituency that really can influence things for the better. Um, it's great to hear that Angela Blackwell was, uh, you know, offering that advice because she uh, was heavily involved in the formation of Smart Growth America and Policy Link was a founding board member of that organization. And we all we're trying to figure out together, trying to build power together to have influence in this regard. And I think one of the things that I learned from, from that time was just the critical importance of listening to different stakeholders. Uh, what are the things that concern all of us the most? Can we come up with a common agenda that we all can agree on and then just really push that agenda as hard as we can? Very often what I've seen in coalitions is there is always a temptation to go it alone, to take a win for your particular organization or your particular interest area and then peel off from the rest of the coalition uh, and take those short-term gains. But I've always believed that building power, building coalitions is a long-term strategy. Uh, it really requires trust, the ability to move together, even through thick and thin, and uh, a value of the, the relationship building that you're able to do in order to make change over the long term, because 
none of the reforms that we are seeking are really short-term propositions. What were some of the big, biggest lessons you took away from running an organization? We're going to go to the break in a minute, but and then we're going to talk about how you're applying those that stuff that you learned. But t- talk a little bit about what it's like to run an organization, and particularly one that is so engaged with lots of other organizations. Well, I was barely 30 years old when I started Smart Growth America, so I I learned pretty much everything about running a nonprofit <laughs> during that time. I I was already good at some things, like I was a good organizer. I was good at making uh, the case for public policy changes for for policy ideas, and I was good at raising money. But all of the requirements of actually Founding and running an organization uh, were new to me. All the administrative and operational stuff, like creating 51c3, developing internal financial systems, figuring out how to file uh, the 990, developing a board of directors and working with a board, all that was new to me. And I had to learn it all without really, you know, hardly any support aside from just talking to people. I reflect on that time now as a funder, and I think about all the ways in which many foundations, increasingly in my view, uh, have sought to really focus on leadership development, more programs, more tools, more uh, linkages and connections to help young or relatively newbie executive directors or CEOs like myself at the time, learn the ropes, learn the basics, develop you know, hard skills. And I, I think, wow, I, I really could have used some help back then because it would have been a much smoother ride. Well, that's a, a perfect time to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk how you've applied all that to this work at the at the CERNA Foundation. So we'll be right back with Don Chen, the president of the CERNA Foundation. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Stupski Foundation, a foundation returning all its resources to the communities it calls home in Hawaii and the San Francisco Bay Area by 2029 to support just and resilient food, health, and higher education systems for all. Because change can't wait. Learn more at stupski.org. We are also sponsored by the Conrad Prebis Foundation. Check out their amazingly good podcast. And we're not just saying that. Stop and talk. Hosted by Prebus Foundation CEO Grant Oliphant. You can find them at stopandtalkpodcast.com. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest is Don Chen, the president of the Cerdna Foundation. And we've been talking about, up until now, all of this data and tools and information and experience that you've been that you acquired before coming to Cerdna. We did not talk about your 10-plus years at the Ford Foundation, but... Maybe this is, is part of that conversation where what did you learn all that time and how do you apply it to being a funder? Because there's so much responsibility and such a potential to twist organizations out of shape and to mess things up. But my sense is that you have, because you came at this work from the role of an organizer and a collaborator and a consensus builder, that must have taken you must have taken those those lessons to heart, but can you talk a little bit about what it was like to finally put on the you know the great big hat and sit in the nice office and how do you run a foundation based on all this knowledge and experience? Sure. Well, it was definitely a culture shock, a big transition for me. I basically worked in nonprofits my entire career uh, up until the point where I uh, when I joined the Ford Foundation, and I can think of maybe like if I just focus on the top three 
major things that were that required a transition in thinking and outlook. Um, the first was, you know, for to to the un to the uninitiated, it may seem easy to give away money, but I quickly learned it's it's actually really hard to provide grants and and have the type of impact that's really positive, really durable, and done in a way that uh, is healthy for uh, for the field. And that combination, I think, is really a lot more challenging. There's a lot more to it than most people might expect uh, who are not in philanthropy. So um, so that was a first impression. A second big one is, you know, I spent my career working on environmental justice, housing, transportation, urban environmental issues, and coming to a place like Ford, um, and this, this I would say is particular to Ford and, and other large foundations. There were so many different types of programs. And Ford, of course, has 10 regional offices across, across the global south. And because of that, the, 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 we all had an opportunity to think about the issues that we were working on within a much greater context. Uh, I was able to think about uh, these issues, for example, in relation to to gender rights, in relation to global development issues, in relation to democracy. I come to all of the work as a somewhat of an ecological thinker. I I know that everything is connected to everything else, but actually doing that as part of my day to day with a set of colleagues who worked on lots of different issues in many different uh, regional and national contexts was really refreshing. And I think it was great for just the the discipline of thinking through impact and intent. So that was a second uh, real gift. It was uh, it was very mind expanding for me. And then the third thing uh, that is probably more mundane is just the the resources available. At a startup nonprofit, we skimped on everything, <laughs> you know, and we economized on every possible thing from office supplies to, you know, services. And I would scrounge around to find, you know, furniture for our office. I would, you know, literally take stuff off the street and and bring in like a table or something. But, you know, my first experience at the Ford Foundation was actually right before I started. I went on a team retreat to Lombok, Indonesia. Wow. And my first experience meeting people was actually in the, the airport lounge and I'd never been to an airport lounge in my entire life, but I was in the lounge and all these folks who worked at the Ford Foundation were there. And, you know, it was, it was uh, wild to, first of all, meet people who I really admired, people who were legendary in their fields and to meet them in this like very odd setting. Uh, that definitely struck me as uh, uh, it made a big impression on me in terms of the resources I have since come to realize that yes, the resources are there. The, the, the most effective foundations are able to recognize uh, when to spend those resources and on what, what's really worthwhile. Sending people halfway around the world and putting them in a business class seat actually makes a lot of sense because they need to be able to, to function effectively as soon as they hit the ground. So just thinking through a lot of those things, I think was also really healthy for me as, as well. Well, now you mentioned this right before the break that this understanding about investing in leaders at organizations and and the need to invest in the infrastructure so that these folks can do their jobs. Can you talk a little bit about how you at at Cerdna, how you think about supporting leaders, how you deal with your grantees? There's been a lot of conversation around strategic philanthropy versus trust based philanthropy 
as though the, the maybe this is not a binary, but people sometimes have this conversation as though it were. How how is your philosophy about philanthropy? How has it been informed by having led an organization? How do you understand how these organizations need to work and what you can actually do to support them and, and help make them stronger? Yeah, I think this is a, a key question of our time right now in the sector. And I definitely think that the the two themes that you mentioned, strategic philanthropy and trust-based philanthropy, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And think, In fact, I think they're very complementary. In the sense that I think relationships, if they are to be effective and impactful, they need to be grounded in trust to begin with. And, you know, there are obviously different types of relationships and different types of foundations, different types of nonprofits, but you have to have a basic level of trust in order to move forward. Uh, the CERNA Foundation, we take, a, a, I would say, a, a relatively very trusting approach in that we I think about three quarters or more of our grants are general support grants. We focus on uh, having relatively deep relationships with our partners out in the field so that we can really understand what's going on. We can reduce some of the barriers or some of the trepidation that might come with, for example, telling your funder that things didn't go as expected. Uh, we try to you know, reduce the, the scariness of, of those barriers. Because I think uh, candor, honesty, and a, a shared resolve to uh, seek impact together is is a recipe for having a good relationship. And at the same time, I feel like we all need to be strategic. This is a time, you know, you think about the climate crisis and threats to democracy, and you can name many, many other incredibly pressing, challenging issues. We definitely need to be strategic together. And I, I think uh, there are folks who, you know, have really thought that these themes are, are exclusive, but uh, if we are able to develop strategy together and think about strategy together, for example, if nonprofits can be supported in the way that, that we support most of them, i.e. giving them as much latitude as possible, I think that's a great thing. At the same time, I think foundations uh, like ours tend to hire people with a lot of experience. And so we have expertise, we, we've hired a lot of great thinkers, very strategic minds, and we can add value to, uh, to the challenges as well. So I, I think it's a, a really nice way to complement the work, prioritizing both strategy and trust. And hopefully more and more folks will recognize those nuances and, and try to blend them as well. You know, I've always thought of the Certain Foundation as kind of a, a soulful foundation. I don't know if that is the family, the Anders family, you kind of have a sense of their own values. But the foundation has always kind of spoken to me in a in a kind of an emotional way. A, do you agree? <laughs> and B, how do you approach communications from the foundation in your voice and in the voice of the work that you do? Yeah, I think it'd be really funny if I said, no, we don't have any soul here at the Certain Foundation. Right. But, Technocratic, <laughs> heartless foundation. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I'll maybe um, define it in a certain way to say that this foundation has always prioritized relationships. If you think about the way Andrew's family members have operated, how they have regarded the staff, there's a lot of trust. There's also a lot of relationship building. And as I said earlier, we we like to be in 
deep relationship uh, and right relationship with folks out in the field, uh, just understanding, you know, what's going on with different organizations and, and the leaders that we, that we work with. And in terms of the soul part, one, one dimension I would add is that we have a tendency to focus on what's really authentic. We don't do stuff for show, you know, unlike uh, a lot of institutions out there. And I would say this in, in every sector, we don't put out a ton of press statements to toot our horn. We, we tend to really focus on the impact, on the field, on the partners. And if there's something important to communicate, we'll communicate it if we think it's going to further the cause or, or uh, the goals of our various partners. But we, we generally don't do things to toot our horn. And that's part of the reason why we're the Cerdna Foundation and not the Andrus Foundation. John Andrus, uh, way back 106 years ago, decided not to put his name on the foundation. Uh, and, and the family legend has it that he, he did it because uh, he felt a sense of, of modesty and really trying to have impact uh, without necessarily calling attention to his name. Well, it, it, it shows. And the work is interesting and exciting. What excites you most these days? Or maybe you know, it doesn't have to be the thing that is, excites you most, but what's something that, that is, is particularly exciting to you right now? Well, I, I'm, I often think about two things when I get up in the morning. One is that we are a foundation that right Right before I started, about uh, five years ago, the Cerdna Foundation announced that it's putting racial justice at the center of our social justice mission. And our mission has been focused on social justice for, you know, maybe 15, 20 years, explicitly announcing that we're going to put racial justice at the center of our mission um, was meaningful. And and I, I think that's why they hired me um, since I've worked on that set of issues for so long. And what excited me then and, and continues to excite me is the challenge of really thinking about what that means in an authentic way. And um, how can we advance racial justice, not just in our grant making, in our program, uh, in our programmatic work, but also internally within our operations, our governance, our investing, all aspects of the organization. So to me, that's just been an incredible opportunity to, to go deep and to think about what we can do. And the last five years for me has really been characterized by that journey, just, you know, learning about the possibilities, uh, bringing the board and staff to the table to talk about them and then implementing things. So that's that's been super exciting. Um, and that work continues. On the programmatic side, uh, I would note that for many years, the foundation has had several organizational goals or outcomes. One of them has been building wealth. And I've been excited about this for a very long time. Uh, when I came to the Ford Foundation, I came into the asset building part of the foundation, which um, where Melvin Oliver is the, the great scholar from California, I think currently the president of Pitzer College. He wrote uh, White Wealth, Black Wealth uh, with Tom Shapiro from Brandeis. And he and others established this area of scholarship and philanthropic practice and, and nonprofit um, work around asset building. And I think in recent years, that effort has, it, it ha does not have as much momentum as it should. You know, I think there, there was a big focus on asset building in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and some of that has waned. And I would really love to see more of that uh, implemented, especially in the face of current conversations about things like reparations and 
got the federal legislation, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law and other things that really seek to bring investment and assets into communities and into households. The, the importance of really emphasizing, you know, having foundations play a role in, in making sure that wealth building is not just something we talk about, but is really attained in a durable way is something that excites me every day. Well, in the, just a couple of minutes that we have left, I'd love to, for you to take a step, a half a step back and and ask you if you could wave your magic wand and do one thing to improve philanthropy. What would that be? Sure. Well, I there are many things. I wish I had many magic wands. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what I what I would say is, you know, this is actually I think an attainable one. So may not take so much a magic wand, maybe a non magical one. Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like you know we in philanthropy are awash in experiences. We have successes and failures, and as I said earlier, things that didn't go as expected, and we have an absolute dearth of commitment to learning and to candor and to owning up to things uh, that might've been unexpected. And the thing that I would love to see is more foundations talking about the work, you know, doing it in a, in a way that reflects true partnership with grantees and others in the field to be able to say, you know, we tried these things here, here was our theory of change, here are the assumptions that we initially incorporated into that theory, and here are the outcomes. And, you know, we were able to achieve our goals or we weren't, and here's why. And to me, that is just so instructive for, for the rest of us, but uh, there, there just isn't sufficient effort around that to, uh, to share that information so that we can have you know, greater impact and and be more effective in, in attaining it. Well, you're talking to a comms guy, so I couldn't agree with you more. I've always said that letting people know what didn't work is is a responsibility, not just a good idea. It's like a road closed sign is very important. You go through the road closed, you go over the cliff. Well, Don, it's uh, it's just been such a pleasure. I've, as I said, really enjoyed seeing the Cerna Foundation from afar. And I'm so happy to have a, had a chance to meet you. Thank you so much for talking about your work. It's, it's just been such a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. Thanks again. Don Chen, president of the Cerdna Foundation. And we're back. So Don, if we could do anything for you, let's hear it. I wish we could extract from your memory banks the nightmares of environmental destruction that launched your career. But man, that, what a way to get started, right? It, it, and I was thinking about that from a, from a communication standpoint, you know, what was Don consuming that that was happening for him? You know, what what information was he seeing? And, and, and I have no idea how to date Don in terms of that consideration, but man, if you had eyes open and ears open anytime during the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you were, you were hearing an onslaught of information about the just wholesale destruction of our natural environment. So I think that was such an interesting observation he started with that, that, you know, I got started actually, I had nightmares. This is, this, what was this he, whole journey. 10? Yeah. Oh, too young, too young to be that thoughtful. <laughs> too young to be that. But another throwback, which I loved, he talked about finding a journal in a library. And I want to just snip that and just memorialize that. This is an experience, I think, that people, 
kind of can't have anymore. This is the this is the, the this is what the internet has done to us. But he finds race, poverty, and the environment. Right, 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 right. Published by the Earth Island Institute, the Urban yep. ha- Urban Habitat Program, and and I remember that experience of like you would walk into this library, there'd be this stuff on the walls. You'd pull stuff down, and all of a sudden you're transported into this other world. So just getting started, I love those two snippets of Don in terms of where he got started and, and kind of what, what motivated him early on. Cause that's, that's, that's really good stuff. Well, I think a lot of folks were, they had these environmental awakenings through a variety of things. For some people going way back, it was DDT and it was silent spring or Rachel Car- Carson rather. And, and then earth day was a big deal. And then as earth days began to take, pick up steam, then you could engage young people recycling in schools there's kind of these little things that that kind of bring you in and open your eyes a little bit and of course what you do with that information is is up to you and i know that you and i have both been real have done a lot of environment environmental work for a really long time and for me i mean even as a kid i was i was aware of what was going on around me and from a very young age i started to recycle or to try to recycle i'll take i'll give you a quick story after my uh, show business career crashed and burned horribly, I was working in a video store and I was renting people movies that I was in. And I was also at the, the other side of the store was a, a liquor store and I was stocking beer uh, and, and malt liquor and stuff like that. It was not it was ignominious, but whatever. It was it was honest work. But the, uh, there were all these cardboard boxes. And so I would and there was and they didn't recycle that. So I I piled them into my Chevy Chevette and I would take them to the one recycling center in Seaside, California. I was, we were living in Monterey at the time <laughs> on my own dime. I didn't even charge the guy just because I couldn't bear. To throw. But anyway, so this this notion that Don would have nightmares about the environment, I totally get that. And now, of course, the question is, what what do we what do we do with it all? And mm. and his work on on cities and understanding about race and class in in cities and and its effect on the environment is obvious and it's so important and i think he mentioned that uh, what is it urban pollution yeah it was like 65% of all pollution is occur occurs in urban settings and so therefore people who live in those settings are susceptible to it or subjected to it uh, but the also is that it's it's being generated there and so we have the opportunity to engage our elected officials and 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 others to start working on that well, yeah, three quarters of global greenhouse gas emissions come from cities, and that means from the buildings and transportations that house them. You know, in thank that you, for, work, Kirk, for cleaning up my my sloppy nonsense. <laughs> you know, it's, it's good to best. listen closely. It's good to listen closely. It's good to take notes. But so this <laughs> this work though of drawing these connections of saying, okay, let's focus on cities. Let's not just focus on cities. Let's not just think of them as the built environment, but all of the human inputs and in, that go into that, the race, the poverty, the, all the considerations, how cities are planned, what it takes to pull them together. So this this work is important as it's become, as it's become this notion that Don kind of accidentally starts Smart Growth America to start working on this. It, and I love this coming out of the Surface Transportation Policy project or better known as stpp and, you know, and, i know them well another one of these groups in dc like right and this is this is what we get what we get out of washington dc we send our, our genius great minds there we put them into to work in these frontline organizations and then they start seeing connections and they start seeing what's missing and don says hey there's this whole thing we need to do 
around smart growth. And I have to tell you, just hearing him reflect on that journey of getting that started and then thinking about how that's flowing, flowing through that experience into his work now as the president of the Surgeon Foundation, man, what a, what a learning field, what a place to go to learn, to understand how the mechanisms of change are going to work. And the work he did to pull Smart Growth America together today, you look at it and you say, oh, wow, what a great idea. But when he was trying to pull that off, no way. I mean, that is really tough, tough sledding he was trying to pull together there. Yeah. I mean, obviously, when an, anytime anyone talked about transportation, it was about building more roads. <laughs> yes, exactly. And <laughs> more roads because we needed more cars, because we needed more economy, <laughs> we needed more commerce. <laughs> You're trying to turn all that stuff and, and think about it more. It's thoughtfully. like Charlie Brown and the football. <laughs> as soon as you finish building the road, it's full with traffic. I mean, you're, it's either That's a self-fulfilling right. prophecy but that, that you know, if you build it, they will drive on it or just madness because that's not the way to move people around efficiently and effectively and cleanly is just to build more roads. And so, now, you know, we're starting to see change for sure. Although, boy, oh, boy, the transportation world is um, it's not quite there yet. I drove my electric car down to the last Angeles last weekend and <laughs> experienced the joys of, of the challenge of trying to get your car charged. We'd managed, but it was scary. But that's a happy note that we just heard on Let's Hear It. I Eric know. Brown's driving an electric car. That's I a happy, it. that's an awesome thing. I love so here, here Don goes, he doesn't just start this new organization, Smart Growth, but what does he do? How does he do it? He builds a coalition. He's building coalitions. And so the depth of experience he's collecting as he does this, it's not just the topic area. It's not just, you know, bringing expertise together to bring this new sensibility to, to the fore, but it's also the work going into building conditions, building coalitions to build power. Right. And again, you know, you just hear Don talk about this and you're like, this is the person, this is the personality, this is the sensibility can you imagine all the meetings that Don had to navigate through to bring everybody together? <laughs> There's no agenda yet, right? There's no agenda. Right. They're, de they're developing it together. So I feel like even as he's doing the smart growth piece of this, there's this other piece, which is like, what does it take to build coalitions? Which again, flows through to everything. He, it sounds like he's working on a certain Well, you know, when you have the temperament to be a good collaborator, it helps. And if you're willing to share, and if you're really a good listener, and Don is clearly a good listener, that's gold. And it, this is a kind of a lesson to us all. I mean, we talk, we've talked about partnerships and coalitions and things for quite some time in collaboration, but it, there is simply no substitute for it. And if you run a foundation, you have to be eager to collaborate, not just willing. And you have to be willing to let somebody else set the agenda from time to time. And you have to have the ability to engage your own board and your own institution in what that takes. And that's not easy. I've seen a whole lot of foundations be challenged by that because it, it, you're trying to figure out what your own agenda is and how you are you going to kind of meet all these other folks who have something in common but not everything, at, you know, halfway or wherever. And that just it honestly takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of thought and a lot of care. And uh, Don clearly has those things. Well, here's another master, and I, you know, we talked about this when Larry Kramer was on for a second go around his famous exit interview. I'm, I'm let's hear it, but. <laughs> You know, being a master of opposite school, you know, being able to hold these sensibilities that are actually quite separate, but actually draw, draw them together. So you come up with a strategy, a change making strategy that actually is going to work and beneficial. And 
I love Derek how 20 minutes into that conversation, you raised this conversation about strategic philanthropy versus trust-based philanthropy. And and what do you think? How do those pieces pull together? And of course, what does Don say? You can have it, both. It, right. <laughs> and it, it, this is a classic <laughs> illustration because once Don says it, you're like, oh, of course, you can have both. You have to have both. But but is that where the field is at? Not necessarily. But so so I think that you know this notion of being able to bring these ideas together that are quite different and actually pull something from that that's greater than some of the parts. It just seems like that's part of the skills that that somebody like a Don Chen brings to the work every day, all day. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's I really love talking to foundation CEOs who have that who have that view and certainly who have the background in the work. And this is to say yeah. that academics don't sometimes become great foundation CEOs. I've known a, a number of them, but Don just brings that sensibility of the guy who basically was, you know, finding furniture on the street and who understands how these organizations <laughs> run and what they need in order to succeed. And that's where this, the combination of tr so-called trust-based philanthropy, for those of you who don't know, is it, like a sort of school of thought in which you just find leaders, you trust them to do what they feel like they need to do in order to succeed, and you leave them alone. And this notion of strategic philanthropy is as a foundation, you go, okay, here are my goals, here are my strategies. Here are the organizations that are doing it. I'm going to fund them to do these very specific things, and then some great outcome will happen. And people believe that these things are in competition. But I do believe that with someone with wisdom and, and an understanding about how organizations work like Don, your foundation can have goals that supporting these organizations can help advance those goals. And that in many instances, the organizations can understand the problem or the challenge or the opportunity and then find ways to address those things way better than you can as a funder sitting in your office somewhere. And that's, I think, where those pieces come together. But I don't think everybody can do them. And we, we need to figure out how to do it better. But in a sense, like the trust-based philanthropy is that you like find a great leader of a foundation and you trust <laughs> him or her to be able to identify those things and to put them into practice. Well, and you get the elements. I mean, Don starts talking about the candor, the honesty, the shared resolve that has to be inherent in these relationships as they're being built, but then also points out, and you know, we actually do a fair share of hiring quite well for ourselves too. And we bring experts to the field and expert opinion and deep thinkers. And so that has to be part of the conversation that has to be, we have to be able to bring these different threads together to create more impactful and more effective change. So here's my question for you in uh -oh. that whole regard, because it sounds right. so great. Let's do strategy and let's build trust. Let's right. do again. Let's let's be opposite school. President of a foundation, good job or bad job? Because this <laughs> sounds really difficult. It sounds great, but it sounds really difficult when you really start looking at it. I think it's a I think it's a very hard job. That's yeah. for sure. It's a there really hard job. I mean, we heard Larry. Kramer talk about how hard a job it is. And he is, a, he is a pure genius. I mean, he is, <laughs> if, if he was any smarter, he'd explode. And, and he acknowledges what a hard job it is. Yeah. And, and so uh, that's, that's just kind of it. You have to be a really good manager. You have to hire good people and let them do their thing. You have to very much manage your board who care and are your bosses and have other thoughts, but they also have day jobs. So they're not exactly expert in what it is you're doing. Then you have to build these relationships. You have to understand how the water flows. And, and that's a very, very difficult job. I'm sure I would stink at it. In five years, we have not had one person come on this podcast and say that it's easy to give away money. <laughs> 
We've well, never they, heard that. They went, on the other hand, they probably want to justify their salary. It's like, oh, it's easy. <laughs> like, well, well, why are we paying you so much? <laughs> but here's a great window into the difficulties because I I, I really appreciated Don talking about you, you asked him about um the experience of building spark growth. And he was like, Well, you know, I started that at 30. So every single thing that I learned, I learned on the job. I learned right. by doing it. And and one of his reflections now is how important it is to focus on leadership development and really providing executive directors all of the skills, the basic skills, the hard skills that go into running impactful organizations. But to me, this is one of those great illustrations because I'm like, I hear that and I think, yes, yes, yes. We need that so desperately. We also need it on the board side, by the way. Yes. I can tell you from my own experience, it's like you need both. You need you need you need leadership on the on the on the staff side. You need you need development on the board side. What's your point, Kirk? So how do you go to Don Chen at 30 years old, who's pulling his furniture from the corner of the street up to the office and say, you're the person we're going to provide that investment for. And so, so finding those kind of making those choices, finding those ways to make those interventions work and work well, to me, it seems like that's got to be at the hardest of those difficulties because you know, you have your resource, you know, you have an outcome you're trying to create, but now how do I deliver that into the field in the, be in the very best way? I think actually this is where trust-based philanthropy is at its best. If you identify great leaders, then you commit to giving them the resources that they need in order to succeed. Then you allow them the space to learn and to not have to spend so much of their time raising money, which is, the yeah. you know, any nonprofit CEO or president or whatever, executive director will tell you that they spend half of their time trying to raise money. And in other words, they're like, a, they have a halftime job yeah. of, of yeah. leading an organization. And so that's, that's where the real, I think the real art of philanthropy is, is who are these, who are the great people and how do we give them the, the resources, the tools, the everything they need to, to, I don't know, achieve the things that they're capable of. Yeah. And obviously Don was really smart and, and uh, creative and has, uh, is a, and is a go guy, he's a roll up your sleeves kind of guy, taught himself on the job, but he, I'm sure did it under the laboring, under the burden of having to make payroll and try and raise money and do all those yeah. things that are not about the work. And yeah. it, I think this is where, and for foundations that don't want to pay a sufficient amount of overhead, I say stop that and just give those organizations what they need so that they can keep <laughs> the lights on and buy new computers and all that other jazz. Yeah. So I think all of those pieces are about what trust-based philanthropy is, but it's also about how we grow a field. Because if those people get discouraged and go into tech or whatever, then we've lost them and we've lost their absolutely. brilliance and, and our field is the poorer for it. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, I loved how you kind of concluded this conversation when you, when you started reflecting on this soulful institution, the Cerdna Foundation, which we have not talked about this, but that's a word I would use for Cerdna too, Eric. That's yeah. so interesting that you aren't say we, that. All right, we so it's, simpatico. Well, Kirk. so it, 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 what does that say? Well, he, said, he was like, well, we focus on what's authentic for us. And there's also an undercurrent of modesty about how we approach the work. And I would even extend that maybe to say humility in terms of, you know, how certain things have its role in the field. And so what, what comes of that work, then what, what, what com comes as a result of that? And, and, and Don started reflecting on some of the things that they're working on. And he only talked about it briefly, but when he talked about racial justice standing at the center of the mission of the Surgeon Foundation, and just the little bit he discussed there where he was like, you know, for us, that means all aspects. It means governance, how we staff, 
how we invest. It's not just our grant making, and it's it's bringing the board and staff together to discuss these possibilities and then rolling forward to implement. Just that little glimmer, that that part of that role, again, good or bad, certainly difficult, but man, that seemed very powerful and inspiring. And, and I hope Don is taking copious notes of what that process looks like, because <laughs> can you imagine, <laughs> right? How many other people could learn from that experience? But but that part of what he's discussing just really, it struck a chord over here. And I thought that sounded just really cool, the kind of work that they're, they're doing along those lines at CERDNA. Yeah. And it, it rings true. I mean, when Don talks about it, you get it. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's what his career has been dedicated to. And it's what this foundation, which I, I, I said, I get a sense of it from a kind of an emotional perspective. And I would say that that's, I mean, we don't want to go too far down this road, but Branding, to my mind, is the feeling you get when you think about a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're not perfect. They don't sit down and go, like, what's our brand today? They just <laughs> live their values, and that's right. the brand. That's what people associate the foundation with, and that's how you build trust. That's how you can do co-funding. That's, that's how you can have real conversations with your grantees and with other funders about what's going right and what's going wrong, all that stuff. So. Uh, again, for anyone out there who's working at a foundation or who's thinking of starting a foundation, like that, who you are and yeah. being your true self and making sure that that's embodied in everything you do is essential because yeah. otherwise it's very hard to get what you need to get done done. Well, we get another nod to one of these great programmatic ideas and initiatives that Don says has actually not been so much in the forefront recently, but it's around building wealth. In relationship to the entire conversation around race in America, and um, you know, reflects on the white wealth, black wealth writing that has been done. Um, but but this just philanthropic practice around asset building and how that had been more of a focus, and it's been less of a focus recently. I would love to see us. Here's one of my 2024 resolutions. I would love to see us do a series of conversations with folks that are that are focused on this whole wealth building, especially related to reparations and that conversation. Yep. Because wouldn't it, right? That just, again, another one of those conversations is just ring so true in terms of like, wow, what could that be? What could it mean? But also how difficult that really would be to, to really work that through and, and sort that out. Well, I actually just noted that I saw on LinkedIn, Trevor Smith's article was referenced in Trevor Smith, who was our guest, was working on reparations, has, uh, has a really, really good piece. I think it's a nonprofit quarterly or the nonprofit times, one of those nonprofit thingies uh, in, in which he lays out the case for reparations and for the narrative, building a narrative infrastructure or an infrastructure for narrative to, to help facilitate that, which mm. is, it's not just good messaging is you have to have these institutions that understand how to make, how to change people's perceptions about an issue. And that wow. means you have to fund those organizations. You have to fund the people in them. You can't just like yeah. tell them the message. And yeah. I think that that kind of tying all this back to communications is understanding how, how to affect narratives, how to shift them is an infrastructure question every bit as much as it's a messaging question. And we'll try to put a link to Trevor's article, which That'd was be terrific. Awesome. Uh, because it is, these are the conversations that our guests are having with each other, whether they know it or not. So thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> That's great. So as we leave, you give Don the magic wand and you say, what would you do? What's the one thing you would do? And what does Don say? Don says, you know, there's a dearth of candor around the unexpected part of this. 
We need to talk about the work. We need to reflect on our partnerships with grantees. We need to be much more explicit about what worked and what didn't. And and Eric, I loved your your note. You know, it's no good. The 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 the, the road close road sign, close sign. Yeah, is that's important. My metaphor it, for that. And I just want to suggest that the road close sign it's effective not just because it's out there, but because it's neon and fluorescent. You right. can't miss it. Right. You have to talk about it. <laughs> And so I want to suggest that maybe the world needs a podcast focused on oh, conversations stop. with people in the field Forget because it. we have to get over ourselves. No we have to we have to commit to having these conversations. And I think this dearth of candor is at least in part because we're just so shy. This modesty and humility is actually something that works against us. I, I'm right. Five years in, I'm right. That's all I have to say. I'm right. <laughs> all right, Kirk. Was, was, your idea to do a podcast wasn't the worst idea. <laughs> it was on the list of terrible ideas. But but isn't isn't Don right? Of course he's right. Like there needs we need more places where that conversation can happen, of and course. it needs to be and and it needs the safety, right? It needs the safe space because it. It always sounds good to talk about your failures until right. you start talking about your failures. Then it gets a little bit exposed pretty quickly, you know. So creating safe spaces for those conversations it just feels so so vitally important. I agree. And I'll, next week I'll tell you all about my failures. <laughs> That's great. Well, Eric, my goodness, Don Chen, president of the Certain Foundation. Don, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Hear. What a what a gracious and thoughtful guest. My goodness. And uh, Eric, wow, what a, what a conversation. That was awesome. That was great fun. Happy sixth season. And hey, folks out there, if you're listening, please like us on whatever it is, on Apple Podcasts and write a review and give us stars and things because that's how people find us. And if you're if you think it's worth it, then maybe somebody else will too. So thanks in advance. Thanks, everybody. Happy New Year. We'll see you next time on Let's Hear It. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show, and that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank our indefatigable producer, Harper Brown, John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music, our sponsor, the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. Thank <laughs> you, Mr. Brown. Okay, everybody. Until next time.